Good morning. I'm Mike McNichols, and it's my privilege to be with you this morning. It's good to be with you all on this Advent Sunday of joy. And I'm really glad that in this Advent season at Holy Trinity that we're focusing on the Eucharist, this thing we call the Lord's Supper, communion. And uh, it, maybe this is a trend we're starting, this kind of a, of a combination of, of the anticipation of, of Jesus' birth with a meal that took place right before his death. And I'm coming to believe in this process that this is an important connection for us. I still find uh, this Eucharist thing that we do to be a mystery. It just is for me. Uh, and I think increasingly I'm okay with that. I, I think that the way that, that we practice it here, very simple process of, of leaving our seats and uh, approaching the front, taking bread, taking wine, uh, returning to the place that we started from, there's, uh, there's some meaning in that that I'm beginning to find for myself and maybe for you as well. There's certainly theological meaning. There's, there's transcendent reality to this thing that we call the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper. But I'm really talking about something a little bit more, more personal, more something that affects the heart of an individual person. And I find that I'm really often irritated at myself when I find that I go through that entire process and get all the way back to my seat and realize that once again I have failed to reflect on the meaning of those elements over and over. But as I've reflected on the Eucharist, in the context of Advent, a season of anticipation, and on this particular day, a reflection on joy, I've realized that it's in the anticipation that I find myself most deeply impacted. I anticipate coming forward and having my name spoken as I receive bread and as I receive wine, as I eat. I drink, and I marvel in that process that I have been invited to come to Jesus' table in the first place. And then I return to the place I started from, and I watch as the community in their own level of anticipation also comes and engages in that process, responding to the invitation of Jesus to come and dine. Well, you probably have your own sense of meaning that you find in this process, this celebration that we call Eucharist, but for now, the anticipation is really enough for me in this mystery. And I've been thinking that uh, both Advent and Easter have a kind of intensity about them that makes them unique among the seasons of the church year. Both of them call us into a time of waiting, a time of anticipation as we, we look forward to something big that God is doing. And unlike the players in our original story, in our scriptures, we know what's coming, right? Uh, we know that Jesus is going to be born. We know that after the Friday of crucifixion comes the Sunday of resurrection. But the original folks in the story, his friends, his families, even those who wanted to do Jesus harm, they didn't necessarily see what was coming. All that God was doing in their, from their perspective was mystery. From waiting for a Messiah to come and restore Israel to looking for God's sort of plan B once it appeared that Jesus had been done away with. But because we know how the stories play out, our times of seasonal anticipation are usually marked 
by celebration and worship rather than longing and anxiety. But in this particular Advent season, the words of our psalm that was read this morning may have more distinct meaning to us than in times past. Our entire holiday season is marked by terror and violence in the world, with threats of more violence to come to more nations, including our own. We grieve over the massacre that took place in San Bernardino just a couple of weeks ago, a massacre that took place within 60 miles of where we are right at this moment. And perhaps, even in this Advent season, we find ourselves struggling just a little bit to find that place of joy. Maybe we find ourselves really resonating this morning with the psalmist's cry to God as he says, stir up your might to come and save us. Our enemies laugh among themselves. Well, certainly we hear it in other texts in the Psalms, uh, the call for God to destroy Israel's enemies. And that's a common human response when enemies threaten us, to desire that such enemies will be destroyed by the same violence that they are employing to crush the innocent. But the psalmist makes a different kind of plea this morning. He seeks the salvation of his people in God's self-revelation and says, Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we might be saved. For the ancient Hebrew people, Praying for God to let his face shine would be to ask for God's presence, a presence that would rout Israel's enemies, but that would also signal God's forgiveness and favor upon his people. God's shining face would be the equivalent of God being with his people, saving his people, restoring his people. But in the meantime, the psalmist waits and waits in the midst of danger and cries out, how long? Of course, the psalmist's perspective is not the only one. Israel's enemies stand back and and laugh, it appears, at the calamities of the so-called people of God, mocking the defenselessness of the nation that once thought it was God's favorite among them all. Israel and her enemies see this situation very, very differently, and for the psalmist, The only solution is for God to make his face shine, to be present to his people once again. You know, I wonder if if folks like us don't struggle in a similar way in times of fear and trouble. We find ourselves right now in a global conflict with enemies who seem to be invisible most of the time. Enemies who have very different perspectives from ours about what is right and good and true. Or on a more personal level, maybe we're dealing with things in our lives like illness, financial difficulties, things that from our perspective seem to be just on the outside of God's notice, God's purview. And so we might be standing on the side of the psalmist and cry out, how long? We want God to show up, and his first assignment, we think, is to get rid of all of the things that torment us and bother us. We want God's power, and we want him to put things back the way that we want them to be. But then we are reminded 
that God has revealed himself to us as the word made flesh. To be flesh in a biblical sense is not only to be human, but also to be weak. God in Jesus Christ has made himself known to us in the human flesh that we share, a flesh that is destined toward weakness and yet is empowered by the very breath of God. And, you know, I think the, the image of the Eucharist, the image of us dining at the table of Jesus is important for us here. When Jesus shares that last meal with his friends, he's with them. He's sitting at table side by side with them, consuming the work of human hands in, in bread and wine, taking in the food that, that helps to sustain human life. And so in Jesus, we see the Word made flesh. And it is a flesh that sits at the table and eats and drinks right along with the rest of us. In Jesus, we see this, this paradox of God's power and human weakness coming together right before our eyes. Well, because we know how the Christmas story plays out, in the Advent season, we only anticipate Jesus coming in the way that people anticipate the end of a novel that they've already read. You know how the story turns out. We know that Jesus is going to be born. We know that. In fact, we believe he's already been born a long time ago, don't we? But we anticipate his coming from the vantage point of the table that Jesus has already prepared for us. It's a table where we dine on bread and wine, body and blood, and we find that we truly are restored, that we are saved, that we are healed. But it might be in this Advent season that our rehearsal of the anticipation of Jesus' birth is also being overshadowed by fear and anger over the the violence and death that encroaches not only on our way of life, but on the way of life of people all over the world. And so perhaps we envision ourselves seated at Jesus' table, waiting for him to come, but it seems as though his chair remains empty as we cry out over and over, how long? You know, most of us have had other times in our lives where we've prayed that kind of an anguished prayer. We've waited for God to show up and do all kinds of things. We've, we've waited for God to show up and heal our bodies or, or fix our finances or rescue our loved ones or any number of other desperately desired outcomes. And we wait and we wait and we wait. And sometimes we see God's hand at work right in the moment. Sometimes we see it later, sometimes in retrospect. Sometimes we're scratching our head wondering if anything's going on at all. So in most Advent seasons, we again find ourselves waiting. Not so much for Jesus, but for all of the other things that capture our time and our energy. Especially during the Christmas holidays. I mean, we're, we're waiting for family gatherings. Some of those anticipations are happy, some are otherwise, depending on who shows up. We're looking forward to the opening of presents, services at church, and for everything to then get over with so we can get on with the routines of January, February, March, etc. 
If we work out in the marketplace somewhere, we're waiting for our holiday office parties and the gift exchanges that typically mark our time together. You know, 14 people lost their lives at that kind of an office party just a couple of weeks ago. And I'm sure that they were all waiting for the same kinds of things that we wait for during this time of year. But they weren't waiting to be killed. And we weren't waiting for that either. That wasn't part of our anticipation. Those are the kinds of things that are only supposed to happen in big cities. You know, high-profile spots where people will really take notice. They're not supposed to happen in places like San Bernardino in a nondescript building occupied by people whose vocation is to provide health care to the community. But it did happen there. And the, and the signal is that our time of waiting has a whole new character to it. It's one of danger that might be on the horizon. And this is new territory for us. And, and it will ultimately change who we are as a people in this entire country. And a lot of that change may not even be good. But for us, right here today, our waiting is still one that calls out for God's face to shine, for God to be present among us. We wait for the God who has revealed himself in our weakness, the God who knows all about danger and fallenness and suffering and death. We wait for the God who comes to us as Jesus, offering his own body and blood that we might be saved. And in the meantime, we keep coming to this table that we call Eucharist in our celebration. We come at Jesus' invitation, but, but we also come waiting for him to show up. So what do we do in the meantime? What do we do in this odd time of waiting? Do we line up at the gun stores and get ready for war in our streets? Do we just hunker down and forget all that stuff we've been hearing about loving God and loving neighbor? Do we submit ourselves to the apparent randomness of life and just hope that God somehow remembers that we're still here? Well, I, I think that the admonition that the Apostle Paul gave to his friends in Thessalonica, a reading that we heard this morning, really speaks a fresh word to us as we consider the character of our time of waiting. See that none of you repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to all. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise the words of prophets, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. See, our time of waiting is characterized by the demonstration of God's presence among us, by seeking to do good to one another and to all, by rejoicing and giving thanks and holding fast to what is good. We do those things in the waiting, not because Jesus is absent, but because he's truly present in us, with us, among us, always offering the fullness of himself, the very word of God that is made flesh in the weakness that we share with him. You know, it, it might seem funny at times, 
that we spend Advent anticipating the firstness of his birth while simultaneously revisiting the lastness of the Lord's Supper. But I think that's as it should be. The table of Jesus is now the vantage point from which we reflect upon and rehearse the story of the ages, the story of Jesus. And we try to enter into the experience of those in the past who waited for Jesus to come, but we also gather at table waiting for him to come again. And it's in the gathering that our waiting reflects the very presence of the one who is to come. You know, in this season, as in all times of our lives, it would be a mistake to believe that God is present to us everywhere except in the places of danger and violence. God is present to us in all times and all places. And in his self-revelation in Jesus, the Word made flesh, he assures us that he understands the weakness of human flesh and yet continuously calls us away from fear. And so we might cry out, how long? But we direct that cry to the God who is already present with us. And that's how our time of waiting may be characterized by joy. And I want to close this morning with uh, the blessing that Paul gave to his Thessalonian friends. May the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and soul and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do this. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen.